Good morning. Starting a series on the return of Jesus. It's a big topic. Let me pray. Father, help us to um, believe what you say in your word as we look at it. Not just, Lord, loosely or mentally, but with our whole being. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus is coming back. The same Jesus who walked the roads of Palestine 2,000 years ago, who kicked up dust, who was arrested and beaten and flogged and hung on a cross and bled and died and was buried, who I believe convincingly was raised on the third day and ascended to heaven with his Father, is coming back to this earth. Every eye will see. It'll be bigger than the 2008 grand final that Manly beat Melbourne in. It'll be bigger than 9-11. It will be the great event. It will be the end of history as we know it. It will be the apocalypse. It will be the revelation. The climax of history. But life goes on, doesn't it? And really, really, Jesus will return, a man who lived 2,000 years ago, and every eye will see him. Really? It's a bit, bit much to believe, isn't it? That this world will, as we know it, have this abrupt change. Because it just goes on and on. Well, here's the thing. Is this obscure biblical teaching maybe something buried in our Bibles. There are more than 250, some people say over 300, probably depends which bits you count, references to the return of Jesus Christ in the New Testament alone. It is present in every New Testament book. It dominates the New Testament promise and hope. Jesus is coming back. It is foundational Christian teaching. A very, very early statement of Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, has, says this about Jesus' return to pick it up from his resurrection. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come to judge the living and the dead or as the old version said, the quick and the dead. The return of Jesus is mentioned in every single formal statement of true Christian faith. In fact, the non 8079 Baptist Statement of Beliefs for New South Wales and ACT that we have as our doctrinal statement of belief. Item 11 says this, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of this age, according to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in his glory to the earth. The full consummation of the kingdom of God awaits his return. That is a great statement of faith. That's what I believe. This series, he's coming again. A few talks, just looking at this one topic. It fits well with our theme for the year that we are exiles fit for mission because we are exiles waiting to go home, waiting for the coming. And Jesus' return is our great hope. It's what motivates us. So you've got to ask, do you want Jesus to come back? Are you looking forward to Jesus coming back? It's almost an index of where you are in your faith and of how, how mature you are. 
Because let's face it, isn't this world absolutely fantastic? It is. You've heard the phrase, I wouldn't be dead for quids. You wouldn't be dead for quids because like, it's pretty good being alive. And it can be pretty comfortable, pretty enjoyable. Isn't this world great? But isn't this world broken? Isn't it distorted? Isn't evil present everywhere you look? Isn't life a constant slog of pain and work and decay and fury? Each week, each day, each morning. Stephen Hawkins is reported this week, he gives us a thousand years. Human beings on planet Earth, the clever man. We need to find another planet, we need to develop a spaceship or work out how to travel through time or something because we're done for, says Stephen Hawkins, only within a thousand years. Find another planet. You know, they found one, HD 189733B, and it's only 63 light years away. It's close. And it's blue. That's interesting, isn't it? Because our planet's blue. Maybe we could go to HD, maybe they'll rename it, you know, when they develop the spaceship. Here's the thing, they've done a bit more research. You want to have a holiday on HD, blah, blah, blah. It's bigger than Jupiter. It's going to crush you like an ant. It's blue because of the silica particles that contain its atmosphere which whiz round at about two kilometres a second. It's like shards of glass going faster than, much, much faster than the speed of sound. There ain't going to be much life on this blue planet they've found which seemed to maybe be blue like our planet. And HD blah, blah, blah is about as close as we've got. You want to go and live on Mars? Yeah, let's go and live on Mars when, we, when the Earth falls apart. Well, here's the thing. Mars has a terrible thermal inertia. In other words, the temperatures range on an average Martian day between minus 150 and maybe on a good summer's day 20 degrees Celsius. They average out at about 50 or minus 60 degrees Celsius uh, with dust storms flying around and an atmosphere of carbon dioxide. Oh, who wants to go live on Mars? Me, me, sir. The Earth is absolutely amazing and yet it is so far from perfect. It's so unique, it's so special. And can we save ourselves? Can we make this planet, this spaceship and go and look after ourselves? You know what our really big problem is? The big problem is not our environment or our numbers or the sun and decay, our big problem is our sin. Our big problem is us. You put 500 people on a spaceship and send them to HD, blah, 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 they're going to kill themselves on the way. We've got problems. Here are some basic Bible truths. First of, the Bible says God reigns. He is king, he is Lord, he is sovereign. He is in control. This is his creation. He made it. And we are his creatures. We are not in control. And yet we reject God, who is in control, the king. Second, 
God is holy. He is set apart. His rule is one of justice and truth and peace. And he has a world with humans running it who are in rebellion against his rule of peace and justice and truth. Who distort and create lies. We are therefore alienated from God, our maker. We're not in control. We're subject to him and subject to his judgment. And in doing so, we become self-destructive. We've got a problem. If we are to have any hope, God, who does reign, must breach the divide and come to us. God must come to us. Us. We don't go to God to sort out God. We want to. We think we maybe can. But we don't go to God to sort out God. God must come to us to sort us out. If there's to be any hope, God must come. We don't become God to save the world. God must be God. To save us. Let me say it in other words. In other words, the king must come on his terms by his power to establish his kingdom on this earth that's in rebellion. And you know, it could be said that the whole story of the Bible is the story of God, the Creator, coming to us who have rebelled to call us to himself, to save us, to re-establish his kingly rule on earth, to restore and renew. And really, I think if you want to understand the return of Jesus, the first place to start is to start with God as king who must, to save us, come to this earth and establish his kingdom. If you understand God's kingdom, I think you will understand far better Jesus' return, if you like, as the natural outworking. And you'll look forward to Jesus' return as the natural outworking of God's kingly rule. The Lord's Prayer is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a return of Lord Jesus' prayer. God's kingdom is God's rule in action. It's not geography. It's God's exercise of his rule in everywhere. In the Old Testament, before Jesus, Yahweh, the Lord, we see clearly he is sovereign over all things. He's the boss. And throughout this Old Testament story, his reign is resisted by the nations, why even by the people he calls to himself as his own people, Israel. Everybody wants to be free to do their own thing, to ignore God, to turn their back on God. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the fall and the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God. We just want to do our own thing. We want to be God ourselves. We want to be rebels, independent of the king, the sovereign, the creator. Out of that comes a conviction in the Old Testament that God will vindicate his kingship beyond question. 
He will demonstrate that He rules, that He is Lord, that He is God. And this will happen in the Old Testament on what, they, what we might call the coming day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is associated with judgment on God's enemies, but it's also associated with the establishment of the reign of his Messiah, his anointed one, his Christ, to use different language. Or as the Old Testament calls it, my son will reign and establish his rule. We see it in Psalm chapter 2, fantastic psalm. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers, they band together against the Lord, against Yahweh and against his anointed one, his Christ. They say, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. We don't need God and his ruler. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The king scoffs at them, these little people. He says, I have installed my king on Zion in Jerusalem, my holy hill. He says, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. You, my son, shall rule. The ends of the earth will be your possession. Therefore, kings, I'm skipping some bits, you kings, you be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear because he reigns. And celebrate his rule with trembling Kiss his son or he will be angry. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The promise that God rules and he will rule through his son, his Messiah, his anointed one. 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord tells David, there's going to be a son from your descendants who will make, establish an everlasting kingdom of peace and glory. The beautiful verses we read at Christmas time, Isaiah chapter 9, and this is just such a small selection of this promise. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Better find it instead of remembering it. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end and he will reign on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. There's coming a king, there's coming a ruler, coming as a child, mighty God, everlasting Father. It finds this almost grand cosmic expression in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel sees the Ancient of Days and in my vision at night and there was before me one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and he approached the Ancient of Days and he was led into his presence and he, this son of man, was given authority, glory and sovereign power and all nations and peoples and of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You sense this Old Testament expectation that God is going to set everything right when his king comes. By the end of the Old Testament, this is just a sample, there was this clear expectation and hope of a new age to come. It would be distinct from the present age when God would establish his kingdom through his Messiah. So by the time Jesus is born, the Jews had a strong messianic hope. God's king will come. 
we have four Gospels in the New Testament. Four good news stories, all the story of Jesus. They all tell us very, very clearly that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. The King has come. Matthew tells him through the angel, speaks to Joseph and says, you know, his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. The king has come. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they all tell us explicitly, clearly, he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. The son of David. Now, when the Messiah comes, what happens? Well, the kingdom comes, doesn't it? Because when the king comes, he establishes his kingdom. Isn't it funny that when Jesus is born, not long after, the kings of the east come bearing gifts to the king? John the Baptist prepares the way for the king. He preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can almost reach out and touch it. The kingdom's almost here. Jesus begins to preach and he preaches the same message. He says the first words, he goes around Israel and he's saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. You can reach out and touch it because I'm here. And Jesus goes around Palestine and he heals people and he has control over nature. And he has control over food and drink. And he teaches truth like, with authority like no one else had because the king has come and he's restoring a fallen, broken earth. The lame walk, the blind see. The poor hear good news. The prisoners are set free. Sins are forgiven. The king has come to establish his kingdom. Jesus had a mission. It was very clear. He was baptised into it. He would fight a battle and destroy his enemies and establish his reign. And the battle was fought most powerfully, most finally on the cross of Calvary when the Son of God, holy and perfect, gave up his life for the sin of the world, the great big problem. And death and Satan were conquered. They were disarmed. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. The first fruits, the first instalment of the age to come. Death is defeated. Sin is defeated. Satan has been defeated. The king has come to establish his kingdom to restore and renew. And the message of the New Testament, the basic Christian confession is, you can tell me, I hope, Jesus is Lord. You didn't say it loud enough, I'm sorry. The basic Christian confession, Jesus is Lord. He's the King. He reigns. And those who come to him in faith and trust in his victory... And in his kingdom, they enter his kingdom. They share with him in his reign. 
And for now he is ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. He reigns. He is Lord. But our world, the one that you live in, is still dominated by sickness and suffering and sorrow and pain and sin, as is your life. There's sorrow and there's tears on a weekly basis. And yet the kingdom has come in Jesus. You see, the kingdom has come. Yes, the king reigns, yes, but it has not yet come in its absolute fullness. And so we pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The book of Revelation which Daniel read from was written by the Apostle John to churches that were suffering enormously towards the end of the first century. John himself has been suffering. He's in exile, probably the last of the disciples still alive. Many of them had lost their lives for their faith. He's on this island of Patmos, basically imprisoned. He's in exile. And he writes to these churches in Turkey, in Asia Minor, Churches that are about to suffer more because it's just before the reign of Domitian, the emperor who would start an organised persecution of Christians. There is more pain to come and you're already doing it hard. But John writes in this letter, this apocalypse, of the victory. They're all suffering. John writes to all these suffering believers about the victory about the reign of Jesus, the Messiah. He calls him the lamb who was slain. He calls him the lion of Judah. He tells us in this letter that the serpent and all the powers of this world that follow the serpent, the self-glorifying people who try to usurp God's reign, they are done for. Death is done for. And evil is defeated. The Lamb wins. That's the best summary I've heard of the book of Revelation. The Lamb wins. And we get to share in the victory. And in this introduction we read this, verse 4. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus reigns. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Did you pick all that up? Jesus is ruler. Jesus has saved his people to be a kingdom forever and ever under Jesus. It's all there in the introduction. And John in his suffering in verse 9 says this, I, John, your brother and your companion in suffering and kingdom, do you hear that? I'm your companion in suffering and kingdom 
and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting as we suffer. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of the God and the testimony of Jesus. I am suffering for Jesus now, today. I'm serving Jesus, I'm suffering Jesus, Jesus reigns and I reign with him. Can you see the tension that you and I live with? We live between the now and the not yet. The kingdom has come and yet it is still to come in its fullness. Today is the time to repent. Today is the time God gives us to turn back to him and find security in King Jesus because the final judgment has not yet arrived. Today, we in Christ are new creations. We have been imparted with the eternal life of the age to come. But we still live with the partial. We still live in the fallen world. We long for the deliverance of the entire creation, the renewal of all things. We wait for it expectantly. And Can we do that? Can we usher in the kingdom? Are you able to usher in the kingdom? Are you able to fix up this broken world? No. And a spaceship's not going to fix up our broken world. God has to come to us. That's the basic principle. God must come to us to fix us up. We can't go and fix ourselves up. The king must come. To put it in other language, Jesus must return. Can you see it's just a natural consequence of the kingdom of God? Jesus must come back to judge the living and the dead, to deal with our sin, to renew the creation and to bring us to fullness. And so we wait eagerly for his second coming. And so we come to the promise because this is just the logic of the kingdom. But this promise of Jesus' return is everywhere in the New Testament. John here writes in Revelation, in verse 3b, Blessed are those who read the words of this prophecy and hear hear it and take it to heart, what is written in it, because the time is near. Well, what time would that be? What are we waiting for? Look at verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, quoting from Daniel chapter 7, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be. Amen. Jesus is coming back. And the whole of this story of Revelation, this book of Revelation, is wrapped up in the prospect of the return of Jesus to bring in his kingdom in its fullness. And if we go to the very end of the Bible, the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, after all this glorious story of the conquest of the Lamb, Jesus says in 22 verse 12, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus says in verse 16, Look, I have sent my angel to you to give you the testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. I am the king promised, the king who reigns. Down in verse 20, 20, right at the end of Revelation, he who testifies these things says, 
Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. End of Bible. Come, Lord Jesus. Yes, I'm coming soon. The whole of the New Testament is imbued with this promise. John 14, verse 2. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you so. I am coming back to you to prepare a place for you so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place that I am going. So it goes on. I am coming back, says Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples, the angel speaks to the disciples. Men of Galilee, Jesus has just ascended into heaven. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken away from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, perhaps my, one of my favourite verses. It's always dangerous when you say it's your favourite verse. You'll think of another one and say, no, that one's better. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Jesus is coming back. I want you to know that the Bible teaches that. as clearly as. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And some would say, you Christians, your dreams, it's just pie in the sky when you die. Some would say it's the opiate of the masses, this useless hope. As we've been looking at in our series on 1 Peter on exiles, Peter would say, no, it's a living hope. Because the promise and the truth of Jesus' return, which is the coming of God's kingdom in its fullness, changes everything. This is not a small promise. This is a living hope. Titus chapter 2 perhaps expresses it as good as anywhere in the Bible. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. There's hope. There's rescue. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This hope changes how we live. It's not pie in the sky when you die. It's glorious living hope that changes today because it secures tomorrow for good. Social reformer from the um, 19th century, Anthony Ashley Cooper. 
We'll put his picture up. Seventh Earl of Shaftesbury, he is a hero. You've heard about Wilberforce and the slave trade. I tell you what, this guy is every bit as good as William Wilberforce. He is a hero. I don't care if you're not a Christian. This guy is a hero. He was a British politician. He had a really hard upbringing in childhood. British politician in the 19th century. Through him, he did masses of work in lunatic asylums. He went into lunatic asylums when he was young, as a young politician, and saw people naked on straw, unwashed and unfed for three days. By the time he died, there was something far closer to our mental mental health system that we have today. Almost entirely through his political motivation and committee work. But it wasn't just with mentally Ill, mental, working with mental illness which turned it from de- degradation to hope. He also led major factory reforms in the 19th century in England. Mining reforms for safety. He abolished, he worked to abolish child labour in the 1800s. He set up special things to get rid of climbing boys, these young, young boys who were so small they could climb up chimneys and die. No more of this, said Anthony Ashley Cooper. He started the ragged school system that we could provide education for these urchins on the street in the poorest parts of the nation, in England. Education. What a radical idea for the low-caste boys. And girls. He worked to eliminate the legal opium trade between Asia and England. Towards the end of his life, after 40 years in politics, he said, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. Pie in the sky when you die or a living hope. Changes everything. I don't think I've thought live one day without waiting for Jesus' return. And therefore I give a stuff about those boys climbing up chimneys. Because there's a better world and a better expectation for our world. I give a stuff about the mentally ill who are locked away and in dying. Because this is a fallen world and I expect better. And I'm waiting for God to come and fix it all up, but I'm going to do what I can today, said Anthony Ashley Cooper, because he believed Jesus was coming back. Dame Christabel Pankhurst. You can look her up on the internet. A prominent campaigner for the right of women to vote. A suffragette. A political activist. Her mother was also a political activist at very successful ones. 1923, she wrote, By what seemed to me a chance discovery in a bookshop, I came across writings on prophecy which pointed out that in the Bible there are oracles foretelling and diagnosing the world's ills and promising that they could be cured. Not by political agitation, Not even by the, what was her great discovery? Not by women getting the vote, as good as that is, but by the return of the Lord Jesus. And it seems, she says, too good to be true that Jesus is coming back and she actually spent the second half of her life promoting the return of Jesus 
almost as an evangelist. This social reformer. Does it make a difference? It does because hope gives life. You cannot live without hope. It gives motivation for what you do and it brings lasting change. And if your hope for the future is hopeless, why would you bother? If your hope for the future is making it to the blue planet 63 light years away, why would you bother? But if your hope for is the kingdom of God to come in its fullness and that things aren't right the way they are, then you have a hope. We are exiles, fit for mission, that's our theme. We live now as outcasts with patient endurance, doing good, longing for home, ready to do the Father's will and praying. I pray each and every day, our Father in heart and heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Today and tomorrow, both on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. This is the challenge that we're left with today. Are we living in light of that, of those truths, of where we as his people are heading? So before we...